Maybe seated. So, guys doing the music, we're going to sing the song before the baptism, just so she has time to change. Okay. Yeah, so that's when I, I kind of threw you off there. Ella sent me a text, when am I going to change? All right. Okay, so uh, this morning I'm not going to be in Matthew, uh, but when we come back next week, we will visit the Magi as they actually will be with the Magi as they visit Jesus. So we'll continue in our verse-by-verse study of Matthew. So today what I'd like to do is, uh, it's kind of like a letter, uh, lessons for young believers, and this is just me thinking through uh, basically my life. I've been a Christian for 37 years. I professed faith, uh, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior uh, at the age of 19 at the University of Georgia um, at Lumpkin Hall, and it's been 37 years, and so this is uh, lessons that I've learned, some easy, some difficult, right? Isn't that the way the Christian life is? Some things just just click. Um, The truths from God's Word, uh, they click in your mind, and you're able to start living them out, Um, and others are just more difficult, and we have different sin struggles that we face. So today I've got, I mean, there's, there's so many, right? You might be thinking, why didn't you say this, or why didn't you say that? Well, I mean, I could have been here all day, right? So, uh, but I have 10 lessons uh, for young believers. And the first one is this, is that you have been redeemed from sin to live a holy life, right? So, so you've been redeemed. You've been born again. You've, you've been washed in the blood of Jesus. You've been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God, who is great mercy in his love, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive in Christ. So you have this new life, this new you. And, and, and oftentimes the way the gospel is presented is like, okay, so you don't have to fear hell anymore. That's a beautiful thing, right? To not have to fear death. And that's one of the glories of, of the Christian faith, of biblical Christianity, is that our confidence in eternity is not in us and what we can do or have done. It's in what Jesus Christ has done. But as we're saved, we're redeemed to a holy life. We're saved from something. We're saved from sin. We're saved to live a holy life. We're not saved to live in the same sin that Jesus gave his life for. And so for each of these, I'm going to to have a couple verses, okay? And so this concept of living a holy life can sometimes be a little bit enigmatic. On Wednesdays in the Bible study, I've talked about this a few times recently. You know, holy life just is is not conforming to external standards, so that could be a part of it. Living a holy life is understanding the beauty of God and His holiness. So when we talk about God... We can think of holiness in two ways, and I've said this before. One is negatively, like, like this. We, we are set apart from sin. We don't want sin to have any part in our life. We want to live a holy life. We want to live a sinless life. That's the negative aspect of it. The positive aspect of holiness is this. I want to live out the perfection of the manifestation of God's attributes, right? So God is perfect in all that he is. And the fact that he will never be less than perfect, that he never deviates from the perfection of who he is, 
is his holiness, and that presents itself to the world as beauty, perfect beauty. And so in Psalm 96, worship the Lord in splendor of beauty, in the splendor of holiness, or the be- another word is beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And Paul reminds Timothy, he says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his, because of his own purpose and grace. His grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, right? He's called us. He saved us into a holy life. And oftentimes it's thought of as, okay, I can't do all those things that I used to do, and I'll have to get used to life without those things, and I guess I'll have some joy or happiness in life without those things, you know. And that's just the wrong way to view it. The way to view holiness is I, I am now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out my purpose in life, to live out what it means to be created in the image of God. I now have the capacity to display the beauty of God to the world, and that's a holy life. And so, Christian, you've been saved to live a holy life, but it's not a life, it's not gray, hues of gray. That's just, be careful using those words, right? It's not just like, bleh. It's all that God the God who, I mean, think of the most beautiful scene, the most beautiful vista you've ever imagined. Like Noel and Nevin just got back from the Grand Canyon. She was sending us all these beautiful pictures. I mean, think of the most beautiful thing that God has created. And that's tainted by sin. And God has called you into the beauty of his holiness. That's excitement. That's life that's worth living. So, dear Christian, God has called you to that. Lesson two, your new identity is in Christ Jesus. Right now, the big talk in politics is identity politics, right? And identity is important. How do you view yourself? How do you understand yourself? How do you work out your worldview according to how you've been created and who you are? Your new identity is in Christ, and we need to understand our new identity as believers, right? Because we're going to see a passage in a second that says we're born again, right? We're, we, we have, the old things have passed away, behold, all things new, are new, right? But the problem is, is that that's what we sin again. And, and some of those sin struggles we had before we trusted Christ are still there. They're still real, right? And, and we have to deal with those. And sometimes we think, dude, I struggled with lying before. I struggle with lying right now. I'm a liar. Well, no, in Christ, you can be a truth teller. But your new identity is in Christ. In Ephesians 1, in Him, and that concept of in Him is that, that union with Christ. You are in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. So we, our sins have been taken away, our sins have been removed. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions. You're not, no longer identified by those sins. You're robed in the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone away, the new is here. Whenever I think about this newness in Christ and our identity in Christ, I think about one of my favorite songs written by 10th Avenue North. 
You are more than the choices that you've made. You're more than the sum of your past mistakes. You're more than the problems you create. You've been remade. And then there's a refrain. Because it's not about what you've done, but what's been done for you. This is not about where you've been, but where your brokenness brings you to. Brings you to the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you come in faith through the blood of Jesus, you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and God will forevermore see you as a child of God in Christ. That is your identity. Who you were is no longer your identity. You are now defined by the beauty of God, not the ugliness and shame of past sin. And don't we need that? All of us. On your very worst, in your very worst day, I said this before, on your very worst day, Think about your worst day of failure. You are in desperate need of the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ. But friends, on your very best day, when you think you've dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, you're still in desperate need of the gospel. On your very best day, you are identified in Christ, robed in the righteousness of Christ, blessed in the heavenlies in Christ, On your very best day, but on your very worst day, praise God, on your very worst day, that day when you thought you would never sin that way again, you are still identified in Christ, robed in the righteousness of Christ, blessed in the heavenlies with Christ, your identities with Christ. Do not forget that. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. Lesson number three. God's word is life to your soul. If you're a member of this church or attend this church, you understand the high value that we place on the word of God. Sufficiency of scriptures. Why do we place such an emphasis on that? Because John 6, 63 says this, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Jesus says, listen, the words that I've spoken to you, They are full of spirit and life. And then Peter says, where else can we go? Jesus, you speak the words of eternal life. And then Jesus, before he's crucified, says this, as he prays to the Father for us, he says, as he prays for us, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We live in a culture, a Christian culture, that devalues the sufficiency of Scripture. Devalues the ordinary means of grace. Friends, Jesus prescribes one means for the transformation of our souls, and that is the truth of God's Word. God's Word is sufficient because Jesus says it's sufficient. Now again, as I've been through this before, I don't deny that, that God has given us observational science that helps us to better understand ourselves in certain ways. It, it helps us to understand how past behaviors have, have, have caused us to develop thinking patterns and chemical reactions in our brain that might make it more difficult in circumstances to overcome sin. But there's only one way that we're ever transformed from glory to glory, and that's by gazing on the face of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. 
God's word is sufficient to transform us, dear Christian. Lesson number four, your new life, the full of hope, the full of hope is a war against sin. And though you may lose some battles, the final victory is guaranteed through Jesus Christ. Amen. Aren't you so glad of that hope? Yes. Hey, we know that Jesus Christ has won ultimately. And one day we'll stand fully redeemed, fully saved. We'll we'll be fully glorified. We have that hope. We know that it's coming. But we are a people of the already, not yet. And so we have this war against sin. And and Scripture is so clear about this. Paul says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that that you are not to do whatever you want. And again, in Romans chapter 7, we're familiar with this. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, my sinful nature. For, what I, what, what, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. I keep doing this. Right? So it's interesting, as, as believers, as a child of God, You're a little bit different than the world because you have a sin nature and you have a divine nature within you because the Holy Spirit is resident within you. And for whatever reason, in God's eternal wisdom, he decided not to to remove completely our sin nature the moment that we come to faith in Jesus Christ. I ask myself that when I wake up in the morning, God, why didn't you take all of that away? I'm tired of dealing with this. But we have two natures, and we're all familiar with that, right? This conversation that's going on, these, in some moments, right, you have such wonderful spiritual godly desires in your heart, and you're serving the Lord, and, and, and you're just so excited in Jesus, and then the very next moment, I wish that person was dead, right? So we have this, this struggle in the flesh. It's a battle. It's a war, And friends, that sin is always with us, right? Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 7 as well. God told Cain this, right? Sin's crouching at your door. Paul says, sin is right there beside me. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, he says, put sin to death. Why? Because sin wants to kill you. That sin that promises joy and happiness but leaves devastation. So remember, the struggle against sin is lifelong. Again, not as old as some of you, but I'm older than quite a few of you. I still have some of the same sin struggles that I had when I first trusted Christ. Does that mean that God's word is not sufficient? Does that mean that, I, that it can't sanctify me? Oh no. Just because I'm still struggling with the sin doesn't mean that God's means aren't sufficient to transform me and give me full victory over that sin. So we don't throw away the means. Oh, there's got to be something better because this isn't working, so I have to try something outside of Scripture because whatever I was doing isn't helping. I know. God has ordained the means and the end. And friends, this is, this is tough, okay? 
If you're still struggling with a sin, guess what? That's God's will for your life. God doesn't like the sin, okay? It's antithetical to his nature. But friends, could God not certainly completely eradicate a, a certain sin struggle from our lives at any moment? He could take it away at any time. But he's chosen not to do that. It's a lifelong struggle. Romans chapter 7 is Paul saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I, I, I don't want to do, I do anyway. And then he says, what a wretched man that I am. But where does he find his consolation? Christ. Remember, as you struggle and lose battles along the way, dear Christian, you're not defined by a lost battle. Where's your identity? It's in Christ. And when you do fail, what do you do? You don't wallow in your failure. Scripture says, confess your sin and forsake it. It's okay to lament sin, but you got to move past that. Our God is a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, and on and on and on. Some of you are making New Year's resolutions today about about what you're not going to do over the coming year. That sin that you're not going to struggle with anymore. I want to be optimistic and that you won't struggle again with that. And God is great enough to do that. But when you fail, remember, Jesus' blood is sufficient. He has removed your sins. You are identified in Christ Jesus and his righteousness. God doesn't love you any less after you fail in that sin. Right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. Confess your sin and move on. Embrace the forgiveness that's there. Confess that God is faithful. He's faithful to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Remember that the one in you is greater than the one in the world, is who's in the world, and you have that final victory over sin. Lesson number five God alone can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, right? As we struggle against sin, and one of the struggles is discontentment. We want something, we long for something that we don't have. It could be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing. Friends, if you don't have something today, it's because God's will is that you don't have that good thing today. God's a good father. He's not a, he's not a cosmic ogre dangling a carrot over your head and ha, 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 ha. they think they're going to get that, but they're not going to get that. No. He's a loving father who's only going to give you what's good And something that you may think is good, God says, no, I have, friend, God has so much better for you. If God has promised to conform you to the image of his beautiful son, Jesus Christ, if he has promised that you will radiate his beauty to the world, is he going to withhold something from you that would enable you to do that? He's certainly going to withhold something that would keep you from doing that, right? And so we have these longings, these desires. Augustine, you know, Lord, you know, make me restless until I find my rest in you. We have this God-sized hole in our heart, as it said, that only God can fulfill. And the psalmist Asaph struggled with this in Psalm 73. Right? Asaph is looking at the world. 
The wicked people have the things that I want. I, look at their life. Look what they've got. I don't have these things. I try to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm trying to live a righteous life. God, can't you see this? Can't you see them? Look, what's going on here? Life isn't fair. I deserve to have that thing. And then Asaph comes face to face in worship with God, and he sees the character of God, and then he remembers the character of God. And then he says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you? My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. God promises to satisfy our deepest longings. But friends, dear Christian, you have to walk by faith. You have to believe that that's true. You have to believe that God will ultimately satisfy you. When you're faced with two choices, and one is according to the will of God, and the other is not, and the one that's not seems like it will satisfy you, it will give you what you want, what you feel like you need at that moment, and God says no, Walking by faith says, I'm going to say no to that thing, and I'm going to walk towards God in that thing that seems like it may not satisfy in the moment. Jesus promises to satisfy you. And it's interesting. As I study out this portion that's mentioned here, I I come to the conclusion that this portion is obeying the will of God, obeying his word. That that's where true satisfaction is found. I don't have time to tease that out right now. But Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Psalm 107, 9 tells us, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm twenty two twenty six: The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And of course, Psalm 16, 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God alone can satisfy you the way that you think you should be satisfied. The thing is, God transforms our desires so that the satisfaction that we seek matches how he's going to satisfy us. That comes through being in the word, through praying and walking in obedience. Dear Christian, you can't live life by your feelings or what your heart says. Trust in the word of the Lord, not your heart. This is so important. I mean, the enlightenment was good in many ways. But what we're seeing right now in our culture with all all the issues of truth, Really, the seeds were sown back in the 1600s when truth went from an external objective standard that we submitted to to something that you find within yourself. Like, oh, I've got my truth. You've got your truth. My heart's telling me to do this. Scriptures, the scriptures clearly tell us that we should trust in the word of the Lord, not our heart, not our feelings. Right in Jeremiah, that passage that we're familiar with, where he says, the heart is deceitful above all else, above all things, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Right? We understand that if you're a believer and you've been in the word of God, the heart is deceitful. Don't go with your heart. This isn't a Hallmark movie, as I talked about last week. This is not a Hallmark movie. God's given you his word to live by. So we talk about 17.9, but we don't talk about 17.7 and 8 which really is him talking about Psalm 1, 
Let's look at the text. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. What does that mean? What's in, it's confidence in what he's spoken to us because we don't know him apart from his word. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. Does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The flip side of that is the evil person of Psalm 1. The one who doesn't trust in the word of God, but trusts in what their heart says. We can't live by our feelings. We live by the truth of the word of God. Lesson number seven. Living for the approval of others will rob you of your joy. Living for the approval of others will rob you of your joy. Now, some of you actually live in a world where you don't give a rip what other people think about you. That's not what most people are like. Most people are quasi-obsessed about what other people think about them to the point of sinning. And I tell my kids this all the time. Here's a dirty little secret, right? Because they'll come to me upset about something, what somebody else thinks about them. And like, you know, most people are thinking about themselves most of the time. Okay? It's just the way the world is. And so if they said something or did something that seems like it may, you know, it may make you feel like you don't have their approval, could it be that they're struggling in sin and they're thinking about themselves? Because even as born-again believers, that can be our default. But the Word of God clearly tells us that we cannot live for the approval of others. Right? Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, Am I not trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Living for the approval of others will rob you of your joy because you're not always going to get the approval of other people. When we live for an audience of one, you need to live as if God were the only one watching you and his approval is the only approval you want. Because one day when you stand in judgment, guess what? The, the opinion of your friends isn't going to matter. Right? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, those of us who know Jesus Christ. And it'd be nice to have some friends there to give character references, but God, it's going to be a one-on-one, and you want God's approval, not the approval of those around you. It is a huge burden to bear, a weight too much for any person to strive for the approval of others. Now, I'm not saying you live like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care about them. No, it's... You care about the word of God and his truth, and you live according to that, and other people need to adjudge, adjust their judgment according to that, okay? Number nine. Oh, number eight. Number eight. How can I skip this one? The local church. We're going to ten, guys. Remember, going to ten. The local church is God's wise gift to you for your good and for his glory. Right? Ephesians is just, it, it is it's Paul's letter about the church. And as he writes about the church, he tells us that it is God's wisdom. It is God's wisdom to the world. The manifold wisdom of God is is in the church. The church is made up of people. So you'd be included in that. And part of that manifold wisdom is, yes, it's Jew and Gentiles coming together, the one people of God. I get that. 
but it's also all that us coming together with our unique, who we are uniquely and how we're uniquely gifted and the, and the calling to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and how that manifests to the world, how God brings people together from all different backgrounds to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Ephesians 3, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Down to verse 20, he's finishing his prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory what in the church and in Christ Jesus. And I'd be so bold as to say in the local church, I get the universal church, okay, but the universal church is made up of a bunch of local churches, okay? So we can't discount the local church. Dear Christian, the local church is a gift from God. It's not an obligation once a week. I want you to look at those one of the passages that we read through over the month and understand that God meant those for you, right? Yeah, I always say, hey, you need to be busy fulfilling the one another passages. But guess what? You get to be the recipient of all the one another passages as well. That's a blessing to you. The church helps us with the ordinary means of grace. The word, prayer, the ordinances, fellowship, encouragement as the body of Christ comes together. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Here's the truth. God ordained the church as a means to that sanctification according to his truth. The church is a gift from God for your good. It's not a weekly obligation or a bi-weekly obligation. Number nine, you are loved. Dear Christian, you are loved. Um, we talked about love, love a lot this past fall, didn't we? Going through 1 Corinthians 13. I think that was good for us as a church to go through that passage. But sometimes we fail and we just don't feel lovable, do we? God, how could you love me? How could you possibly love me after I've done what I've done? Again, God was reaching out to a rebellious and stubborn nation, people that had set up idols in opposition to God. And God says this this to them. He says, look, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I've drawn you with cords of kindness. There he's talking to the nation of Judah, his chosen people the Israelites. But he speaks to us as well. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that death of Christ is love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see the connection there? Atonement involves death. Atonement involved atonement involved Christ dying for our sins, and that defines love. You are loved. God's love doesn't change. You are, you are loved perfectly on your worst day. 
your love perfectly on your best day. God can never love his son Jesus any less than he loves his son Jesus. And you are in Christ. Lastly, as we close up, your life, it's ups, it's downs, it's pain, it's sorrows, it's joys, it's successes, it's failures, are all for the glory of God. You know, that makes God sound a little bit egotistical. Right? But I've already said the glory of God is the manifestation of the perfection of his attributes to the world. Right? It's this glory, his holiness never changes. And so for us to have the greatest good, God, God needs to glorify himself. And when God glorifies himself, you have all that he wants you to have, and you will have the greatest joy. Even in the most difficult of circumstances. Again, as a child of God, I can make a promise to you, dear Christian, I can tell you this, and you know this passage, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? So, so every single thing that happens in your life it is from a loving father. Well, God doesn't sin. He doesn't cause other people to sin, but he allows things to happen. He's ordained your life. It's ups, it's downs, it's pain, it's sorrows, it's joys, it's successes, it's failures. They're all for the glory of God. Your life is about God and his glory. It's about living for the one who bought you with his blood. And as we submit to that and walk in obedience, which is how we glorify God, then God begins to make sense of the world around us, and we understand. So dear Christian, 10 life's lessons. And again, there could be more. There could be more. But if I were talking uh, to a young daughter that was getting ready to be baptized, I'd be telling her this. Because I love you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word and all that we know of you because of your word teaches us about your great character, your great love, teaches us about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Father, we, we thank you for the hope that it gives us, the promises that are there that are ours that we can grasp a hold of, the hope that we have of, of being glorified with Christ. And how do we have that? Because your word tells us about it. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I, I know that I've probably hit, uh, with these different points, uh, the crowd that's here, Lord, different, different points have spoken differently to us. Let's pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us as he sees fit, that you would transform us from glory to glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to sing a song.